Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. We will talk more in this hour about the big story today uh, out of Saskatchewan, the discovery of more, in fact, 750 more unmarked burial sites found at a former residential school in Saskatchewan. We'll talk about the significance of this particular discovery and also where this broader conversation goes about reckoning with our past and being able to, to really move forward. So that's uh, coming up after 2.30. But off the top in this hour, an important conversation around uh, Canadians who go abroad to, uh, in this instance, join up with ISIS. The problem of foreign fighters, how the media covers these stories and how the RCMP investigate them. And this is a, a story where there's very much some overlap here. In October of 2019... Our next two guests were part of a team of three that actually traveled to Syria to investigate and to interview Mohammed Khalifa, Canadian citizen who had been captured by Kurdish forces. Now, the RCMP very quickly got involved and a court case ensued. We can now talk about that and update that. Certainly, it appears as though the RCMP are uh, working on charges against this individual. Joining us on the line for more is uh, Stuart Bell. He's an investigative journalist uh, with Global News. Stuart, thanks for joining us here today. Hi, Rob. And uh, Dr. Leah West joins us, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor West, great to have you with us here as well. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. Okay, so I, I guess, Stuart, this uh, story goes back now to uh, October of 2019. There, there was a lot that we couldn't talk about, though, up until this point. So, so give us an overview of what's transpired this week. Well, uh, shortly after we uh, published our interview with Khalifa, uh, in an interview in which he admitted to um, having left Canada, joining ISIS, his role in ISIS, particularly in the propaganda department, uh, a few weeks after that, we received, um, or, or the, the RCMP went to uh, Superior Court in Ontario, got a production order that uh, not only required us to hand over uh, raw audio tape of our interview, but that also banned us from publishing any anything about uh, the matter. So um, we challenged that, and uh, that... Uh, court dispute has been gone ongoing for some time and it's just only now resolved uh recently to the point where we can now report on it so we can report on it we can talk about it but uh, an ontario superior court judge has has sided with the rcmp when it comes to to handing over this recording then yeah i mean we argued um i think very uh reasonably that it's um it's you know, not our role as journalists to um, be agents of the police, that um, that we have a distinct role, and that when police come after our uh, raw research, it actually makes it more uh, difficult for us to do our jobs and more dangerous for us. Um, people uh, that we may be seeking to interview may not want to talk to us if they're, you know, if they think that the police might uh, get hold of the raw recordings of the interview. And in addition, people uh, in the future might not appreciate uh, that a journalist had played a role in the prosecution of a member of ISIS, and, you know, that could lead to security issues down the road. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, we argued that, um, you know, it wasn't our role, but also that if the RCMP wanted to interview Khalifa, they were perfectly able to go and do it themselves. And this is where there was a difference of opinion, and um, the, the judge ultimately said that it was too dangerous for um, for police to do that. To do what you two did. 
Uh, Leah, what, what, first of all, Leah, what do you make of that? That is an argument. Um, I've never found it compelling because of my own personal experience uh, traveling there with Stuart and uh, or I should say the other third was uh, Professor Amara Mersingham at Queen's University. Yeah. Um, you know, I did not feel unsafe while we were there. Obviously, that changed um, after we left because pretty well immediately after we left, um, there was um, uh, the Turkey crossed into the border and and re and pushed people back, and there was there was some violence there, but that was an unusual situation um, that uh, could we could see coming in advance after Trump's phone call with President Erdogan, so it wasn't entirely out of the blue. Um, I but I don't really think that that's the main reason, and my understanding is that. Um, the RCMP cited security, practical, and legal reasons. And from where I sit, having tracked cases where RCMP have traveled abroad and CSIS have traveled abroad to investigate people associated with um, terrorism, it looks a lot more like a, resul- re- a legal reason to me and a legal reason that uh, could lead to a lot of uh, dollars being expended by the RCMP um, and the government of Canada. And I say that because that's what happened in the case of Mr. Omar Carter. Um, Mr. Omar Carter was interviewed by uh, CSIS members while he was detained in conditions that violated um, international human rights obligations. And that led the Supreme Court to find that um, he was entitled to a remedy under the charter. And ultimately, uh, Mr. Carter took that decision um, to file a civil lawsuit that resulted in a $10.5 million settlement. And realistically, here we're dealing with situations where Canadian government agencies don't control the situation um, that the people being interviewed are being detained in. So they can't pretend to claim that um, or make sure, certain that the people they would be interviewing aren't being detained in a process that's violative of their rights. So as soon as Canadian agents then participate in that process, the Supreme Court says that they have violated their rights. Um, so uh, it's, I think it's more of a legal hurdle and um, rather than a security hurdle. So, Stuart, and, and you have the story as well that comes out of all of this, that the RCMP is preparing charges against this particular individual, which which I suppose is, is a good thing. But how much of that is, is based then on, well, I guess, essentially the, the work you were all doing there and, and what he said and, and what you gathered in these interviews? Well, that's the thing, Rob, is that I don't think um, the RCMP needs uh, our audio of our interview. And this is also part of our position. Um, Mohammed Khalifa um, has been um, very outspoken over the years um, about his uh, his role in ISIS. Not you know in interviews, not just with us, mm-hmm. but in addition to that, um, he is um, believed to be and has admitted to being the the voice of ISIS. Basically, he was brought into the ISIS propaganda wing. Because he speaks very clear English with a North American accent, they uh, exploited that to try and appeal to uh, recruits. So he was the voice that appeared in ISIS videos, in uh, in um, statements where ISIS was claiming responsibility for attacks, for example, in Orlando, in Paris. And not only is it completely obvious to anybody who listens to him and listens to those recordings that it's the same person. Um, The RCMP has done its own audio analysis at its lab in Ottawa and concluded that, you know, it it is the same voice. They also have um, interviewed his family in uh, in Toronto who, uh, you know, who told them uh, about him and and, uh, confirmed his identity by, um, by looking at the photographs. And, uh, and videos. So, you know, the, I, I just don't think they need um, what we have, and uh, I can't. I just can't see how uh, they can't already bring a slew of charges against this guy. And I just add well, from yeah, a legal point that. of view mm-hmm. that if they were ever going to use this evidence of the recordings 
in court, they would call us as witnesses rather than produce the produce the audio um, because they can, right? There's no need to go to an audio recording. They can call us as witnesses and ask us to relay what he said. Um, we wouldn't necessarily um, be in a different position, but I just think that from a legal point of view, it's absolutely unnecessary um, in this case to seize um, research and recordings from journalists. But to that, Leah, as you say, so we've, we've got some precedent set by the Supreme Court that, that limits what the RCMP can do in these situations. I, I don't think it's ideal to just leave these individuals to be dealt with by the Kurds, especially when I think the Kurds would like us to to deal with these individuals for them. Is is the solution then to figure out a way to bring them back, or, or how do we resolve this? Yeah, we don't need a, to figure out a way to bring them back. Uh, lots of countries have set the example, including the United States, who's repatriated everyone that they intend to prosecute. Um, and, you know, the United States had made clear that they would assist, if necessary, in returning allied um, to allied countries their, their citizens who are being detained and, and assist with prosecutions. Um, we have had Canadian officials traveled into the region to arrange for the return of a Canadian orphan. So there are um, lines of communication already available between Canadian officials and Kurdish officials. Um, so there, there is precedent for this. The thing that's at issue here isn't whether it can be done, it's whether the government wants to do it. And currently they don't because it's politically unpopular. And part of why Stuart and Amar and I went when we did was because it was in the run-up to the 2019 election. Um, and I know for my part, I wanted to raise the I had concerns about the fact that there were then, and there are still now, dozens of Canadian children living abroad. And our government has continued to do nothing but abandon them there. And nothing's changed. Um, the only reason it's not happening is because it looks bad in the polls. Nobody wants to do it. And so the government continues to do nothing. But um, they still have security services. I think we lost Leah there. Uh, but Stuart, I guess just further to to that point there, I mean, if the RCMP are going to eventually lay charges against this individual, is, is all of that predicated on bringing him back to face those charges or how would this all work? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and I should add, my understanding of what's going on here is that um, the RCMP investigators in that work in national security are actually uh, looking at ways of charging them and bringing them back. Um, you know, because ultimately that's the only way that these people uh, are going to face justice. You know, I don't think these people clearly made their own decision. They decided to leave Canada to, to live in the Islamic State, to contribute to a horrific terrorist organization that committed atrocities against the Syrians and Iraqis and others. But, um, you know, the only way that they're really going to be held accountable for that is if they're ultimately brought back to their own countries and put on trial. Yeah. And I think um, the RCMP is, from what I understand, they recognize that it's probably better to bring them back in an ordered fashion. So that is for the government to control their repatriation, to be it, for it to be something that the government does uh, on its own, as opposed to waiting for... Um, who knows what will happen in the future? And, uh, you know, perhaps the Kurds will just kick them all out and they'll be arriving here haphazard in groups. Uh, and the RCMP, you know, isn't ready for that. So I think uh, what I'm trying to get at is it seems like individual investigators are trying to do what they can to, um, to bring charges against these people, to get them back, get them in court, get them in prison. Um, but those proposals seem to be uh, going to Ottawa and dying. And, you know, you can speculate why that is. Um, the government, for whatever reason, has uh, has clearly made a decision that it's not going to be doing this at the moment anyway. Yes. But, I mean, this case raises so many issues. It, this case raises the issue of uh, how Canada is dealing with these Canadians that participated with ISIS and how it's investigating them. 
and it raises issues about uh, about journalism. And uh, you know, again, we're seeing a case where the police are not recognizing the very distinct role that journalists have. That um, you know, we're not just another source that they can tap for uh, for information when it suits their purposes. That we have a very different role, and it's best to leave us to do our job and let them do their job. Absolutely. Much more on all of this, uh, globalnews.ca. Stuart, appreciate you joining us here. Thanks, Rob. Thanks again. Stuart Bell, and also thanks to uh, Leah West. Uh, Stuart Bell is a national online investigative journalist with Global News. Dr. Leah West, Assistant Professor of International Affairs and National Security and Intelligence at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. So the two of them and another researcher uh, had gone to Syria in October 2019 and interviewed this individual who was in Kurdish custody at the time. That's the thing. Look, of the Kurds were saying, hey, you know, back off. We've got these guys. We took them into custody. We're going to put them on trial. We're going to deal with them. Okay, have at it, right? I mean, you know, the Kurds are our allies in this situation. Instead, they're, they're asking the opposite. They've been asking for countries to, to take these individuals, their nationals, and deal with them. So we haven't been willing to do so. Look, if we're just going to bring them back and say, hey, stay out of trouble, guys, then no, Canadians aren't going to stand for that. But if it means charging these people, holding them accountable for their crimes, which is what they've committed, uh, then we should do it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. The RCMP are preparing charges against this individual uh, who remains in Syria, though. And the excuse they gave in court, well, it was too dangerous for, for, too dangerous for us to go talk to him. Well, you know, a journalist and, and two security researchers were able to do so no problem. So the announcement today that, uh, and there will be more like this, and I think we need to, to face that, but uh, the discovery of more unmarked burial sites at a former residential school, uh, this one in Saskatchewan, Kawasas uh, First Nation Chief uh, Cadmus uh, Delorme, confirming today they found what they believe to be 751 unmarked burial sites. We started our radar penetrating research on June the 2nd of 2021. As of yesterday, we have hit 751 unmarked graves. And that at one point, he says, that there actually may have been headstones there. In 1960, there may have been marks on these graves. The Catholic Church representatives remove these headstones and today they are unmarked graves well joining us to talk more about the significance uh, of this very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon uh, james daschuk who's a professor in the uh, faculty of kinesiology and health studies at the university of regina professor daschuk thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon welcome Hi. to the program oh well thanks for the invitation rob it's one of the situations where I mean, maybe we shouldn't be shocked, but it is still shocking nonetheless. I mean, what, what do you make of it? Well, I guess it's, well, I mean, 751 is a tr undeniably shocking number. I guess mm -hmm. we can be shocked without being surprised. We, right. uh, we, knew, we, we knew the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission back in, in 2015, you know, uh, sort of uh, forewarned us about this and... and um, Commissioner Murray St. Clair actually asked for the resources. They, uh, I was just watching uh, Commissioner St. Clair uh, on on YouTube last night, and he was talking about they they weren't expecting to hear about that many deaths. Like he was actually surprised in his uh, as as the TRC made their way across the country, and they made an application to the federal government to uh, to get the resources to follow to follow up this story of how many how many children were dead and you know abandoned you know, without, without grave markers. And, you know, sadly, the federal government denied that request. So here we are six years later, you know, with, uh, I think it's uh, call to action 76 about, about cemeteries, you know, that, that has been sort of sitting in limbo for six years. And, and only, you know, in the last few weeks with King, the discovery of Kamloops and now Kalasis, and I'm sure many others, we're going to see some action on the part of the federal government. And, you know, to their credit, the, the Alberta government has committed uh, committed funds to, to archaeology, the Saskatchewan government, the federal government. 
uh, have committed funds. But I mean, this is going to be a tough summer because we're going to be we're going to be hearing more about this. Yeah, and we are. Talk about the importance, though, of you know, of of coming to grips with this, right? And and acknowledging what happened and and filling in some of history's blanks in terms of documenting who these children were and, and understanding what happened to them and even just righting the wrongs of ensuring that the, that there are gravestones or that, you know, they, they are properly mm-hmm. laid mm-hmm. to rest. Well, I guess there's a couple of different ways of looking at that. And, and you know, one of the things, and, and um, you know, my heart goes out to, to Chief DeLorme and the, and the folks at Calisys for, for really t- taking ownership of, of this story, you know, rather than, then, uh, you know, stories being passed from, from elders to adults to, to the next generation and so on about, you know, sort of looking out in the field and talking about the injustice. Those folks, as terrible and as tough as it is, are, are going out and, and locating those bodies, 750 of them. It's hard to uh, kind of wrap my head around that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they're going to do is they're, by, by taking ownership of that story, they're going to be able to go through ceremony. They're going to be able to at least... I don't know. Send those kids off in a in a in a proper way, as they say, um, you know, into the next world. Because who knows, you know, who, like you know, those children, many of them may have had headstones, but the document, the the records were were kept in a probably purposely terrible way. So we have lots of information on on children coming to schools, and compared to the kind of like the exit information, um, you know, it's it's a, a small fraction because. Either the, the um, you know the administrators of the school lost interest, or they didn't have interest, or they didn't have the the resources to to maintain the paperwork, or they just didn't want to report that level of death. There's a there's a story. Each of those schools was was supposed to um, supposed to report in the sessional papers of Canada, like in in the uh, annual report of the Department of Indian Affairs. And there's a, a school that's kind of um, it's pretty close to, to Calisys at, at Labrette. And Father Huguenard, the uh, the Roman Catholic missionary, you know, kind of boasted, oh, yeah, we've had a pretty good year. And this is like just before the turn of the 20th century. We've had a good year. We only lost a few kids to consumption. Like his bar was set so low that if he only lost a few children every year, he could report that he had actually done pretty well. That's a pretty, pretty low, dismal, horrific bar. To, uh, to be describing. In addition well, it, to, yeah. oh, I was just going to say, like, mm-hmm. you know, so these are, these are children who went through literally generations of malnutrition and immune suppression and, and, you know, things like tuberculosis. In the mid-20th century, there were actually Canadian government physicians. This is only, you know, 70, 80 years ago that Canadian government physicians and nutrition scientists did experiments on residential school kids because there wouldn't be ethical issues because because there, you know, there weren't any parents to consult, yeah. and so, you know, like we've got a legacy, we've got a pretty horrific legacy as Canadians to deal with, to deal with this, to internalize it, and then to, I don't know, to act on it somehow, to, to maybe, maybe to reset the relationship between the state and First Nations people, because it certainly hasn't, yeah. it certainly hasn't been a, you know, a, a well-oiled machine for the last 140 years or so. No, and and for the survivors, and you know, even for subsequent generations. I mean, you know, this this has an impact, and I can imagine what all of this news has been like to those who, who lived through these experiences themselves. But just the impact on, on the broader community, I, I think we need to to better understand and appreciate that, don't we? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And and you know, um, like like I said, this has got to be tough for for all First Nations people, like from family level to community level to. To nation level and you know provincial and national level, but like these are stories that that most of us Canadians have been able to. I don't know if it's put them on the back burner, but it's you know even the TRC report, as powerful as it was, didn't seem to change everybody's mind. And now we've got you know just in the last three weeks or so, whenever Kamloops was, we got two fifteen there, and we've got seven hundred and fifty some at Calisys. Like how many bodies does it take for us to? Um, to wake up to this you know this was know. this was done on behalf of non-indigenous people to you know this was like some crazy social experiment where where the government funded the the religious orders to break down indigenous identity to break down indigenous families and communities and like we're still dealing with 
with the aftermath of that. There's never been, I'm an Indigenous health researcher, there has never been a time in Saskatchewan, or in Alberta for that matter, that Indigenous health indicators have ever been equal to non-Indigenous health indicators. So life expectancy, there was a federal government minister 2018, 2017, who, who admitted in public that there was a 15-year life expectancy gap between First Nations people and the rest of us. Like, holy jeez. Like, yeah. you know, the, 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 those bodies in the field continue to reverberate. Like, it's, it's the same process that are sending young Indigenous people to their graves at an early time. Because we haven't, we haven't honestly, as a, as a country, dealt with these issues. Well, you know, in a, in a that's, full that's, and yeah. fulsome way. Yeah, I think it's true. And I think, you know, maybe the current generation can can wonder why it's it's been left to us, that why this wasn't dealt with long ago. And I mean, those are important questions, too. But I don't think we should pass this down any further. I think now's, yeah, now's well, the time to deal you know, with it. it, it, it this is, I don't know if this is a day for optimism. I'm kind of conflicted yeah. emotionally today. Uh, but the one thing, here in Saskatchewan, we've had provincial Ministry of Education mandated treaty education and residential school education for more than a decade so the young people who are coming up i teach a first year indigenous health class my first years are are much more informed now than they were 10 years ago so you know i mean this relationship is, is, has has been dysfunctional for 140 years it's not going to change overnight you know um but i think younger people are a lot more open-minded than say a lot of us older types you know what i mean like we mm-hmm. we've been socialized to think that canada is a is a humane country full of kind caring people and um like you know this is just more proof that we haven't been we'll leave it there Do- uh, professor dastic thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon really do appreciate it for sure. Thanks, Rob. Take care. All the best. You as well. Uh, that's uh, James Daschuk, professor at uh, the University of Virginia, and his thoughts on the significance and uh, the implications of uh, these findings and, you know, how we need to move forward here as a country. Uh, Kawasis, uh First Nation Chief Cadmus uh, DeLorme did address that today. You know, so th- th- this is and there is a need uh, for some time to heal. There's a need for understanding. And issued a plea for Canadians to to allow for that and to stand by us, he says, in that process. All we ask of all of you listening is that you stand by us as we heal and we get stronger. And that we all must put down our ignorance and accidental racism of not addressing the truth that this country has with Indigenous people. We are not asking for pity, but we are asking for understanding. We need time to heal, and this country must stand by us. We have reached out to the Government of Canada, the Prime Minister, Minister Bennett, Minister Miller, have reached out and told us that they stand beside us in what they can help with today. I have reached out and they have reached out to me, the Roman Catholic Church, our archdiocese in this region, his name is Don, and we have talked as well. What we are going to be doing now is we are going to be putting names to these unmarked graves. We want to honor our loved ones that lay there today. We want to make sure that we keep that place and preserve it so many could come here and heal. It's going to hurt in the coming months because the more we put names to them, the more that it is going to reopen some of the pains that many endured at the Maryville Residential School are going to reopen. The gravesite is, is there and it's real. And if you were to see it, there are 751 flags when you look at it. It is the pain of the memories of being in the school for many that it is triggering. And that's why I thank all of the messages, everyone listening, that I ask you to open your mind 
that this country needs to have truth and reconciliation. All right, so that from Chief DeLorme of the uh, Calasis First Nation on, you know, what they're asking for, what they need, uh, as uh, we, we all come to grips with this, but certainly the impact in, in that community is indeed profound. But off the top of this hour, I want to talk about uh, what's happening with the price of oil. And it's quite remarkable, especially when we consider where we were at, you know, in March and April, May of last year with what we're paying at the pump and the price of oil and dipping into negative territory and, and all of that, things have changed. The price of oil is uh, staging quite a comeback and is uh, on the march, currently over $70 a barrel, I think just over $73 a barrel. And all of a sudden now, just when you thought maybe we'd never have the conversation again, there's talk about it getting all the way up to $100 a barrel. Now, that has all kinds of economic ramifications, both good and bad. And here in Alberta, I think, you know, we see both sides of that. It's frustrating, you know, to be paying whatever it is right now, $1.20, $1.30 at the pump. But this definitely is, is beneficial to the Alberta government's bottom line. Now, we're facing a pretty massive deficit at the moment. Things would have to get quite, quite high to, to erase that altogether. But uh, definitely, this is going to have a, a big impact on Alberta's budget. Alberta's Revenues, joining us uh, to talk a bit more about uh, just what that impact is. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, someone who's uh, following these uh, numbers very closely, Trevor Toom, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Calgary and a Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the U of C. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome back to the program. My pleasure. Good afternoon. So when we look at the, the recent budget, and, and like every budget, there's kind of a, an expectation of where oil prices are going to be at, and that can be a, a tricky guessing game, uh, certainly from year to year. What were we anticipating uh, over the course of 2021 and into 2022 originally? Well, in the, in the budget earlier this year, we were anticipating oil prices basically about 20 to $25 lower than what we're actually seeing them today would prevail for the coming fiscal year. And then even looking out, just barely having oil prices get above $60 per barrel out by 2023 or so. So we were budgeting based on, in retrospect now, some pretty conservative oil prices. And, and that's a really big deal for the budget where each $1 per barrel change this year is $230 million to the government's bottom line. So this is going to have some big implications. Yeah. It is. One point, too, that comes up a lot, and I, I know the budget looks at, at the, the price of, of West Texas Intermediate, WTI, and we mm -hmm. kind of use that as a guide. I mean, obviously, the, the Western Canadian Select price is a little more relevant, but yeah. well, why do we use uh, WTI as a baseline? Well, all, all these different oil prices are very tightly correlated with one another. They tend to go up and down together. Yeah. Western Canadian Select today is almost itself at $60 per barrel. So that differential is also not um, not all that large relative to where it's been in the past. So all oil prices are rising. Now, WTI is relevant also because it's really heavily traded. It's that benchmark North American oil price. So it's, it's, it's a very liquid market. You have futures contracts for people making deals for deliveries you know, years out into the future. And so you get a lot of information from that that you don't really get as easily with uh, narrower price benchmarks like WCS. Okay, so let's go back to what we're looking at right now, as you mentioned. So we can link about $250 million, as you say, to about every dollar increase in the, mm -hmm. the price of a barrel? Yeah, and that's largely from two factors. One, if oil and gas company revenues are higher, then just mechanically royalty payments are going to be higher. But then there's also revenue increases elsewhere on the budget, uh, in particular from like corporate income tax revenues, because we are also taxing the profit that oil and gas companies and their suppliers uh, make. But then over time, we have some facilities that are almost going to have their capital investments paid off. And what that means is they jump into a new royalty structure, what's called post payout, where the amount that they pay per barrel is quite a bit higher, an order of magnitude higher than what they pay prior to that. So this higher price means that royalty revenues are going to grow a lot, potentially 
fairly soon as these facilities transition to post-payout. But this year, roughly, maybe five or six billion uh, in additional revenues to the government of Alberta, cutting the projected deficit by a third. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I guess that would be from 18 down to, to 12, potentially, billion. Yeah, yeah, and I'd say if prices stay where they are now, and who knows what oil prices will do, but if they do stay where they are now, I'd say that 18 to 12 is, is a conservative projection. Uh, uh, and, yeah, so, I mean, if, if it stays along this uh, trajectory, and I guess this is a tough game to predict, but, um, you know, looking out two or three years, I mean, you know, we might get closer to balance uh, a lot sooner than anyone had expected. Yeah, indeed, the prices we're seeing now, not just today, but if you also look at the prices that people are contracting for in the future today, like this time next year, people are putting real money down on contracts at $68 per barrel. So people are still anticipating high prices out into the future. And these prices exceed the government's own high price scenario that they released in the budget. And so we may very well, if things uh, continue on this track, be able to balance around 2024 or 2025 without actually having the tough conversation around taxes. Which, and yeah, I mean, it, we've, we've been down this path before, as Alberta, yeah. haven't we? Where you know, we sort of forget about these conversations when the oil money is rolling in, and then once it dries up, we realize that, no, we never really fixed that problem. There's some of those structural problems. So Indeed. That, that's that's going to be the case once again, isn't it? That it would be yeah, easier yeah. to forget about these conversations, but these, these challenges haven't gone away. Yeah, I, I fear you're right, and I certainly wouldn't bet against that. But there's a reason why we refer to this as a roller coaster. It goes up and it goes down, and it feels yeah. really good yeah. on the way up, but it's scary it's on the way down. And we do need to maybe take this opportunity, if indeed it is one, to to use the breathing room that it's providing for us to gradually get off of this roller coaster so that the ups and downs of oil prices are not something that will um, mean public debt levels rise and fall in the way that they typically do in Alberta. So the impact on, on government revenue is a little more clear. What about the impact on economic growth or, or unemployment? Because, you know, there's some concern that maybe we're, we're not going to see the, the kind of jobs recovery that we've seen yeah. in, in past price booms. And how does that translate? So I think that is right. I'm pretty skeptical of anyone who might anticipate that employment in oil and gas is going to rise back up to its prior levels. We have companies that have just changed the way that they do things in terms of how they structure their head offices or the production processes in the field, become a lot leaner and more efficient. And they're not going to just hire back and go back to the way they were doing things before because prices are higher. It's definitely going to increase uh, profit. It may increase investment as certain types of expansions might now be profitable that weren't before, and so that matters. The real gains are in terms of, I guess, overall confidence and sentiment broadly uh, affecting investment decisions elsewhere in the economy, but also increased you know, spending on the part of those who um, work in oil and gas as those revenues filter through to other areas. And it's tough to estimate this, but uh, the government was looking at economic growth this year about 4.8%, which is historically high, but coming out of COVID, that's not all that high. The conference board is now revised up to over 6%. And if prices kind of stay where they are now, we might have economic growth in Alberta this year of over 7%, maybe as high as 8 which uh, is huge. That would basically mean we're fully recovered from COVID at uh, the end or the early of next year, which is about two years faster than we were previously projecting. Fascinating. Now, by the way, this this was a big story today, and I know it caught your eye. And for for economists, this, this is your bread and butter, and this whole <laughs> business of you know studying economic impact. But you know, at times when we talk about major mega projects or mega events, it, it can be easy to get caught up in well, it creates some jobs, and then those jobs right. will create other jobs, and those jobs will create right. other, other jobs, and the number just keeps growing and growing and growing. The idea that right. this hyperloop, which is an interesting transportation concept, mm-hmm. the suggestion that the project could create a hundred forty thousand jobs in Alberta, which, as you point out, is seven percent of total employment <laughs> in Alberta right now. My goodness, what do you make of that number? So I think we often see very large economic impact numbers from anyone who is a proponent of a large-scale project, in particular infrastructure projects. So 
the Hyperloop folks are not doing anything new. What they're using is a, a tool that's really not appropriate for these kind of estimates. What they really mean is they're trying to measure it at, at a stretch, maybe the footprint, if you will, of, of the project, but it's not actually new jobs that are being created. It's really shifting jobs into this uh, project that would have been accounted for elsewhere. I should say, just for clarity, that the 140000 that has since been uh, clarified after the fairly uh, <laughs> Uh, broad skepticism that it received, mm-hmm. that would be over the span of seven years. So it is kind of double counting a lot. So think about it as maybe 15,000 or so uh, per year. And even that, though, is is somewhat inflated. We should look at these projects as not job creation initiatives, because you could take that same money and spend it elsewhere, spend it on a fleet of, of hot dog stands or replace pipelines with a bucket brigade if you really want job right. creation without thinking about productivity. We ought to think about productivity and what those games are. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there. Always appreciate the insight, Trevor. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. You bet. Take care. All the best to you as well. There you go. Trevor Toom, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow of the School of Public Policy. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a fun game to play with numbers, I guess. And sure, so you say we're going to build a bridge and the people who work on the bridge will get paid and then they'll go and they'll buy homes and people make those homes and then there'll be jobs there and they'll go to the store and they'll buy groceries and they'll go and buy beer and all these jobs created at the grocery store and the beer store and the brewery and uh, it it just it it goes on and on to the point where it can get a little ridiculous that that's not a realistic way of counting how many jobs your bridge is going to create same thing with the hyperloop it's um, you know kind of futuristic technology, a way of traveling at ultra high speed uh, between destinations. It's obviously still more conceptual than anything else at the moment, but uh, there's a company that that's looking to build a, an Edmonton to Calgary Hyperloop. So they've released a feasibility study, which, as Trevor said, was met with um, a fair amount of skepticism. The idea that this project will create up to 140,000 jobs. 140,000 jobs. How, how do you get that number? Obviously, 140,000 people aren't going to be employed building the Hyperloop. Obviously, 140,000 people aren't going to be employed operating it. But it's that same kind of, you know, the economic spin-offs of this and the direct or indirect jobs that result from some of that anticipated economic spin-offs. So it's getting a little creative with numbers, and not surprisingly, you see that when Proponents are trying to make a case for something. You know, the amount of money being spent, sure, people would be working on this. There's some economic impact. Fair enough. As Trevor Toomes says, I think there's there's better ways to judge the merits of these kinds of projects. And this kind of <laughs> funny math, let's put it that way, is, isn't helpful. I want to focus right now on the conversation around uh, combating hatred and hate speech in particular. I think, sadly, we've seen evidence in Canada recently where we do have problems with with hatred, uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim hatred. We've uh, definitely seen this manifested. But we ought to find a balance, too, between being able to, to target that hatred, find ways of effectively countering it, but also protecting our fundamental freedoms. And that includes freedom of speech, freedom of expression. We've certainly had these debates in this country, and and in some ways we're bringing back a a debate from about a decade ago. A debate around what was uh, then known as Section 13 of Canada's Human Rights Act was at the center of a very high-profile case, a complaint brought against McLean's magazine that eventually uh, the government got rid of, I think was officially struck in 2014. In announcing new hate speech legislation, though, Uh, The government intends to bring back that provision to try to target online hatred. Keep in mind that we do have laws in the criminal code uh, that that target hate speech. So do we need these additional tools? What are the threats that that exist here when it comes to freedom of speech and freedom of expression? Well, Joining us uh, on the line, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Kara Zwiebel, who is uh, director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association's Fundamental Freedoms Program, or at CCLA.org. Kara, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. 
All right. Well, I mean, certainly the government uh, had telegraphed that uh, some some announcement was forthcoming. We saw the details this week. Uh, what, what did you make of it? First of all, your general impressions. Um, you know, I, I think it's similar to what we we expected, given some of the questions that the government was asking through some of the consultations that they did. And um, wasn't a huge surprise that they brought back in a, a version of Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. Um, they've also added this new peace bond possibility in in the criminal code, which, um, you know, which I think gives rise to to, to concerns. I mean, both both of the sort of core aspects of the bill um, give rise to the same concerns that always come up when we're talking about hate speech. And that's, you know, that, that it, it is, um, it is, you know, the state policing people's expression. And, um, and there is, there, it, there is a, a subjective component to this. It can be hard to decide, you know, what falls on um, the wrong side of the line when it comes to hate speech. The, the courts have, have sort of struggled with coming up with a definition, and the, the best they do is really just to, you know, to give other synonyms for hatred. So they talk about feelings of detestation or vilification um, to, to sort of convey that this is something very, um, you know, that there's a very high threshold. Um, but I still think there's the potential for a chilling effect on expression when we um, use these legal tools to um, to try and deal with hate speech. Right. And again, we have, I believe it's Section uh, 318 and 319 of the Criminal Code uh, that exists to target, you know, the, the most uh, virulent forms of, of hate speech and, you know, in particular uh, advocating for genocide, things that, that very clearly cross the line. And, and obviously mm-hmm. when it comes to a criminal code charge, uh, obviously, there's much more in the way of due process, uh, an ability to make a defense. And it seems yeah. when, when it comes to these other means of tackling the problem, as you mentioned, there's the problem maybe that the wording is too vague. We don't have the same kinds of protection. So there's that concern. And, and there's the question, then, is it redundant? Are these these additional tools even necessary? Well, I think, you know, I think with the Canadian Human Rights Act, the, I think the idea behind it is that it's supposed to be a mechanism that individuals can use rather than, uh, you know, a, a mechanism that the state uses. So it's, it's supposed to be that if I'm targeted um, with with hate speech and, and feel that it's, you know, having discriminatory impacts on me, then I have recourse through um, through this provision in the Canadian Human Rights Act. The problem is that most of what the Canadian Human Rights Commission and Tribunal are, are concerned with are, you know, acts of discrimination. And um, for that job, they, they have to take a very, you know, broad understanding and, and they're used to having vulnerable groups come to them for seeking recourse. When it comes to hate speech, um, they're going to probably have to turn many people away to say, you know, I, I know this is very bad and hurtful, but it, it doesn't actually rise to the level of hate speech. And and so I think it puts them in a very difficult position, um, and, I, and I'm not sure that it's sort of well suited that they're well suited to to fulfill this. Well, it is a, yeah, it is an interesting element uh, of how this all works because you're right. I mean, if someone's discriminated against, you know, this restaurant refused to serve me or whatever. I mean, because of my race or sexual orientation or whatever it is, then sure, going to a human rights commission and saying my rights were violated, I was discriminated against, that that's straightforward enough. But in, under these circumstances, there's not that requirement. Someone could make a complaint because these words I came across on, on the internet could expose somebody else to hatred. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so even though the idea that it might or could possibly expose someone to hatred is vague, it's not even an affected individual who's who's making the complaint in the first place which is an odd element to this yeah there i think there is that possibility under under the the code although the commission might um you know might not proceed without ensuring that sort of the targeted group is is on board um right you know but but, it, but it's hard to know and i think that um it, you know the other thing is i'm not sure whether um whether we really get out of that process what what we hope to get. Um, I think the experience with it before before it was repealed, um, you know, was that um, there were some cases where the tribunal said, you know, this stuff has to go and we kept take this stuff down. Um, there were a lot of cases that were brought to the tribunal by a single individual who had sort of decided to to seek this stuff out and try to to weed it out and take it to the tribunal. So it wasn't, um, you know, the 
targeted groups themselves that were using this. And I know the government has said that they want to sort of empower groups to use this, but I'm, I'm not sure that there's anything in the bill that, that really contributes, you know, to that goal. Um, and then the, the other side of it is that even if the commission, you know, the, the commission does sort of have a screening rule and decides whether um, complaints go to the tribunal or not, and even if they um, they exercise that function really carefully, um, you are going to have people who are going to be tied up in, you know, the investigation of something that they said, um, like like the McLean's example, right, for, for a while, and, and that can have that chilling effect on people where, you know, other people look at it and say, oh, I, I, I guess if this is something, you know, if that's something that can get you hauled in front of the Human Rights Commission for, then maybe... Uh, maybe what I want to say is also offside, and maybe I, you know, I just won't say it. So, so you know, there are there are concerns about that, and I, I just don't know whether um, there's really good evidence that these mechanisms actually work. Because the, the reality is that we, you know, even if it were possible to scrub the the internet of all hate speech, um, that wouldn't mean that hate ceased to exist. It, it would just mean that you know we've we've managed to conceal the evidence of it. So yeah. so I think, you know, there are questions about how we get at that deeper, um, you know, the roots of that problem. Right. I think those are important points. I mean, no one denies that, as you say, I mean, hatred exists, hate speech exists, and the Internet can be a cesspool for this kind of stuff and certainly can be used to, to radicalize individuals. So I don't think anyone's denying that, that there is a problem that exists. I don't know whether this is an effective way of addressing it, but at the very least, could the government be looking at adding some additional safeguards to all of this? Do you think there are ways that, that the legislation could be improved? Um, I, I think there are parts of it that, that might be improved. I mean, there are some things that the legislation does that I think um, are, are potentially helpful. So there's never been a, a definition actually in you know the criminal code um, that, that says what hate is. Um, the courts have interpreted in a certain way. This bill does put a, a, a definition in, and it, it takes that definition from the Supreme Court cases. Um, mm-hmm. The problem is I don't find that definition all that helpful. It, it talks about notification and detestation. It, it's sort of just it's a synonym um, situation. Right. But the code also, the, the, the bill also says what is not speech and it says you know it's not just expressing disdain or distaste for someone it's not it's not just humiliation or uh, or hurt or offense and and it's helpful I think to have those things spelled out in in the code because I think people don't understand that um, you know just being offended by something it, it doesn't make it hate speech that hate speech is really um, on the pretty uh, far end of the, the spectrum it's pretty it refers to pretty extreme speech um, and so a lot of the, you know, unfortunate garden variety, racism, misogyny, homophobia, all that stuff that exists online um, probably is not going to be captured by, you know, by these definitions. We'll see what comes of all of this. The government is promising to hold some hearings over the summer. But if we do get a fall election, then, um, then, then this might not actually be tabled in Parliament for some time. We'll see what happens. Much more at ccla.org. Gary, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate your input on this. Thank you. Take care. You as well. Gareth Zwiebel with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, their Fundamental Freedoms Program. And, you know, and, and look, I mean, they, they've been active on this issue. They were front and center when we were having some of these debates, you know, 10, 12 years ago, which eventually led to the government uh, of the day striking down Section 13 from the Canada Human Rights Act. The Liberals say, you know, tell you what, we're going to bring that back. So I think a lot of the same arguments that applied then still apply now. I mean, as Kara points out, there, there's something to be said for at least trying to clarify what hatred is or what hate speech is. And, and this bill makes some attempt to do that, as she alluded to. So the, the law tries to make it clear that this isn't about disdain or dislike. Anything that might discredit, humiliate, hurt or offend is not hate speech, that it is stronger than all of that. It is detestation or vilification, words that are still somewhat subjective. And the idea that something is likely to foment that hatred or likely to expose to hatred is still a very subjective concept. 
And is there any evidence that that uh, you know the existence of this uh, Section Thirteen ever made a difference? No doubt there was all kinds of hatred on the internet. How much of it is in Canada? How much of it is within the control of of Canadian authorities? Right? I mean, all kinds of different hate groups, even banned terrorist organizations the government's talking about today, they, they all have websites. I don't think it's difficult for Canadians to, to access those websites. And one of the weird aspects is that, and this came up in, in those many debates all those years ago, is that intent doesn't matter. You know, for example, the Anti-Defamation League has always had a, um, a website, part of the website, devoted to exposing anti-Semitic cartoons that air in either far-right publications in, in the West or Islamic extremist publications elsewhere. But, the, the, you know, the way our laws have been written or the laws in this area, that it doesn't really matter that publishing those kinds of cartoons to expose them versus publishing the cartoons because you agree with them, it's a meaningless difference. So that, that's the other weird thing about it, at least with the provisions in the criminal code that deal with willful promotion of hatred, you know, promoting genocide, those kinds of things. There, there's a lot more built into that, you know, where truth is a defense, right? Those kinds of things. Intent matters, all of that. So I'm not sure why we need all of this. I'm not sure why the liberals have tabled it now or introduced it now because parliament's not even sitting. And in all likelihood, we're going to have a fall election. So this won't ever be tabled, at least in, in its present form, in the House of Commons. So it all seems a little cynical on top of everything else. Uh, an important conversation around vaccination and uh, the vaccine specifically. There's an urgent need to get people fully vaccinated as quickly as possible. And, you know, recently we've done a good job of that in Canada, even here in Alberta, we're now right around coming in on 30% of eligible Albertans fully vaccinated. We've now got over 70% of eligible Albertans with the first shot. Things are progressing. The next couple of weeks could be interesting, though, because we are going to see a drop off in, in Pfizer shipments. At the same time, though, we're going to see a big increase in Moderna shipments. And this is a situation where I think people are well aware of the brand name, the manufacturer of the vaccine they're getting, which under more norm normal circumstances might not be the case. I think there's some vaccine shopping going on. I think when it comes to these two mRNA vaccines, maybe there's a preference for, for one over the other, perception that one is better than the other. But the other question is, can they go together? If someone got a Pfizer vaccine as a first dose, and there's Moderna vaccines available now for a second dose. Is it fine to, to mix the two? And the good news is, it appears to be. So rather than have people delaying their second shot, there's an opportunity here to make sure that we can keep doing it as quickly as possible. Joining us uh, for some further thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Gerald Evans, who is chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases, also professor in the Department of Medicine, Biomedical and Molecular Sciences at Queen's University, an adjunct scientist with the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences and a co-investigator with the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network. Dr. Evans, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Yeah, good afternoon, Rob. So in, in your own uh, experience so far, what you've been observing firsthand and, and hearing, I mean, are, are we seeing that, I guess, vaccine shopping, for lack of a better term? Well, I think what we're seeing is people are coming for their second uh, shot, uh, and they may have received Pfizer first, and, and then they're being told, well, what we have on hand in the vaccination clinic is Moderna. And a small number uh, of people are saying, oh, I'd, I'd rather wait and get Pfizer, uh, so uh, maybe I'll rebook my appointment and come back later. Uh, but having said that, the, a vast majority of people, I think, uh, hear that. Uh, they've either understood that, that essentially the two vaccines are virtually identical, uh, and they're receiving their shot, or they're listening to the uh, the staff at the vaccine clinic and uh, explaining what the issues are, and then they're accepting it. But yeah, there's a few people I think who who kind of tend to uh, say, oh, I think I'll wait for Pfizer and come back later. And and again, as you were saying in your introduction here, uh, that's really not the strategy we want. We need to get people fully vaccinated to really reap the benefits of the COVID nineteen vaccinations. Yeah, and even for people who are not 
you know, don't necessarily have a preference for one vaccine over the other. I think people have kind of been conditioned that, okay, you got Pfizer in the first shot, that's what you should get on on the second. So I think people are maybe looking for some guidance on that. And is is that where it's important for for public health for for experts to to help address that and and you know let people understand that, yeah, these are very similar vaccines and and that it's okay to have one and then a second shot of the other. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no question about it. I mean, you know, uh, everyone was uh, understood how the trials were done, where it was the same dose of vaccine given to the recipients, and that's certainly what the regulators looked at and approved it. But what we know is that the uh, the modified mRNA that's being used in both the Pfizer Moderna vaccine is essentially the exact same template. Uh, the only difference, actually, is the size of the dose. The dose in the Pfizer vaccine is 30 micrograms that you're administered, and the dose of the Moderna vaccine is 100 micrograms. Um, you know, when you look at them in some what we call indirect comparisons where, you know, similar um, uh, vac- the vaccines have been used in a similar population, they really come out equal. Uh, and, you know, if I was going to make a, a little bit of a pitch, I'd say in a weird way, Moderna's got a slight edge that way when you look at a, a trial that was published uh, last month uh, amongst American healthcare workers showing some uh, better efficacy uh, after a first shot uh, than Pfizer, although it was not statistically significantly different. So these are essentially the same vaccines. Vaccines, and there's nothing wrong with receiving one first and the other one second in whatever order. If you got Moderna first, getting Pfizer second, I don't think it's going to be an issue as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, I would just remind people that essentially it's the same technology and same platform. And, and to the point about the, the urgency here and why it's important that people get fully vaccinated now as opposed to waiting two or three weeks, right? What, what is it we're trying to achieve here? Yeah, that's a great question. And what we're doing is we're trying to cut the Delta variant, cut the legs out of the Delta variant. And that has been shown that when you have two or you're fully vaccinated with two shots, uh, that the Delta variant is very much controlled. There's almost certainly a degree of sterilizing immunity, which prevents you from actually even getting infected. So we think that will dramatically cut any transmission increase that we're seeing with Delta. And remember that the Delta variant is even more transmissible than the Alpha variant, but it really requires us to fully vaccinate the population to see that benefit. And that's why delaying two or three weeks is unbelievably uh, important problem not to have because, you know, it takes about two weeks after you get your second shot to really get that effect. And so um, really we want people to get it now and don't delay it even for a couple of weeks. And I mean, if we want to be optimistic about it, I mean, at least vaccine shoppers are, are willing to get vaccinated. I, I think we're starting to see the challenge in, in Canada where we're getting to 70, 75 percent with a, a first dose. And we're finding that there, there are certain communities or certain pockets where it's it's harder to get that message through. And, you know, you know, this is a variant that, as you say, um, I think I, I read somewhere, you know, it stalks the, the unvaccinated, to, to put it dramatically. But it's it's definitely going to be a problem if we have 25 or 30 percent unvaccinated. Uh, and, and having this this variant circulating. So how do we get to 80 or, or 85%, do you think? Yeah, well, it's it's going to be continuing to push confidence in the vaccines. And I really can't underscore enough how vaccines are our way out of this pandemic. Everybody wants to go back to the way things were before the pandemic. If you are fervently in line with that thinking, then that means you need to get vaccinated. You need to encourage people to get vaccinated and recognize that these vaccines are tremendously effective and they're really quite safe. There have been some very rare safety issues with AstraZeneca and a little bit with the mRNA vaccines in young people with uh, a, a reversible short-lived um, uh, episode of myocarditis, but these vaccines work and they are what are going to protect you. They're going to protect the people around you, your family members, your friends, and they're going to allow us to open up society because as you said, where Delta's getting its chance at doing something bad is in populations that are unvaccinated. I'm curious to the, the Novavax vaccine. I've had a few people ask me about this. And, you know, Novavax recently published some really encouraging results. It looks like they've got a terrific vaccine. It's a more established kind of vaccine platform. Seems to have actually lower rates of side effects, too. I, I wonder, do you think this is the kind of thing that could make a difference that if people are, for whatever reason, hesitant with the vaccines we have now, that, that something like this potentially could be appealing? Is it something Canada should prioritize, even though we have an abundance of these 
other vaccines? Uh, no, you've got it exactly. The Novavax vaccine, and for that matter, another vaccine that's under development by Sanofi and GSK, are what we call recombinant subunit vaccines. And they're very similar in the platform that's used to vaccinate people against hepatitis B. What's great about those vaccines is exactly that. They have an enormous safety profile. Uh, they don't tend to produce any of these even rare, rare issues that we've been seeing, seeing around, you know, the, the adenovirus vector vaccines and the mRNA vaccines. I think that will help us really hit a small segment of the population that may be still a little bit hesitant. They're only maybe 5 to 10% of the population, yeah. but that grabbing those people with uh, something like Novavax or the Sanofi GSK vaccine is really going to get us up to something that approaches about 90% of the population vaccinated, fully vaccinated. And, and I think at that point, we really are going to re- uh, you know, reap enormous benefits from such a large percentage of the population vaccinated. We got to put this pandemic to rest. We all want to go back to living our lives the way they were before the pandemic came. Absolutely. We'll leave it there. Dr. Evans, appreciate the insight. And uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Gerald Evans at uh, Queen's University, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases, a professor in the Departments of Medicine, Biomedical and Molecular Sciences, also Pathology and Molecular Medicine at Queen's University. So um, certainly appreciate his thoughts on all of this. Yes, absolutely. There's uh, a real consensus here that Pfizer, Moderna are essentially interchangeable. So let's not wait. Let's get people fully vaccinated as quickly as we can make use of the resources we have now. But I like what he had to say about uh, Novavax. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, at this point in the U.S., for example, uh, it appears as though the, the FDA, the CDC, is maybe hesitant on, on giving emergency use authorization to another vaccine just because they have sufficient quantities. But I think there's a lot to like about the Novavax vaccine, and I think... The results speak for themselves in terms of what they published so far. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, if that can get through to people and say, well, I don't know about these mRNA vaccines, new technology. Look, to me, uh, the evidence is clear. These mRNA vaccines are amazing. But sure, okay. I mean, if someone wants another vaccine, well, there, there is one. There's one there. And, and Novavax looks like they've done a great vaccine as well. Maybe that would help to, to accelerate that approval here. You know, even if it makes a, a tiny difference in boosting our rates by, you know, 5%, that's, that's big. The higher we can get that number, the better. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.